We've listened to 15 of the greatest hits by George and Ira Gershwin for this special Gopher Day episode. And I listened to it once yesterday. Welcome to Spin It. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Spin It, the record-ranking podcast for people who would rather be listening to music. I'm James, and with me is Connor. Happy Gopher Day! Yeah, this is going to be a different kind of an episode. Today, the day that this episode comes out, is Groundhog Day in the United States. Mm. And we wanted to do something special. We thought about maybe like revisiting an artist for the first time. I thought that'd be fun. But then I thought, no, there's a rodent that's very similar to the groundhog that's been very near and dear (laughs) to Connor or, you know, to the podcast in general. And that's the gopher. For context, for non-American listeners, what happens on Groundhog Day? It's a weird holiday where we just make a groundhog look at its shadow, and if it freaks out, we get a lot more winter, and if it doesn't, it gets warmer. It's a weird kind of superstitious day, but not on Gopher Day. See, the reason Connor brought up gophers is because way back on episode 45, a singles episode, he decided to share with us Rhapsody in Blue by George Gershwin, right? Why did you pick... Rhapsody in Blue. <laughs> Remind us. Because it's an awesome song. Because it's an awesome song. We hadn't really done any orchestral classical style music at that point in the podcast. It's true. And at the time, I was a bit of a skeptic. I mean, we're doing this singles episode, but we were trying to live listen to music and react in real time. And the first song he pulls out is this 16-minute like <laughs> multi-movement suite. And I was flabbergasted. And as we went through it, he illustrated what he thought about as he listened to this song, right? You called it the song you want to play as you're descending into madness. Yeah. (laughs) And the way that he envisioned it was like a Looney Tunes cartoon where you were hanging out trying to like whack-a-mole with gophers, like Caddyshack. Or maybe I'm doing yard work and a gopher keeps popping up. You're describing yourself in a Looney Tunes episode to this song is what's happening. Pretty much. (laughs) And so in the scenario with the gopher right now, I'd be like hammering a bunch of different holes as he's going, as he's going down that, and bam, there, the gopher's back. Playing whack-a-mole. Listen, this is what I, this is what I think about when I listen to classical music. That's this is it. Are you sure you haven't already had your descending into madness montage? <laughs> this would be a good spot for like maybe I've hit myself with the hammer mallet or whatever, and so I've seen like little gophers around my head. I'm not even gonna dig into that. <laughs> maybe I've done the thing where like I'm having that out of body experience where like my soul floats up out of my body and then is interacting with things like little ghost gophers coming up with a truce. So you in this scenario, you've tried to kill a pesky gopher. Yep failed you you played whack-a-mole with it for a little bit you hit yourself on the head with the mallet died and are now negotiating with the ghosts of other gophers yeah yeah maybe maybe we're doing the thing where we're sitting around a fancy table i've like i put the little napkin on as a bib and i'm eating with the gopher and we're chatting it up or whatever we're having a good old time it's like a montage of us hanging out we have dinner we go frolicking through the park me and this gopher what is this podcast our commentary about rhapsody and blue (laughs) has so little to do with rhapsody and blue (laughs) but yet so much ah it's debatable It was a wild time. It was. But since then, I mean, the podcast has come a long way in the last 90 episodes since then, roughly. And we've talked about artists who have 
ties to the Gershwins. We've talked about songs that they wrote. We talked about artists that performed all their music in songbook albums. I mean, to name a few, Ella Fitzgerald, we talked specifically about her song, How Long Has This Been Going On, which they wrote, George and Ira Gershwin, that is. And we talked about Janis Joplin and Big Brother and the Holding Company, their cover of Summertime. And, I mean, there's so much more. Ella Fitzgerald did a whole songbook of George and Ira Gershwin. So anyway, they've come up a lot. And I thought, what better time to really explore their catalog of music than today on the day that we're dedicating to the gopher. Heck yeah. It's kind of another career classics episode, like we did for Hank Williams and Ray Stevens. Not talking about an album cover to cover like we normally would, because George and I were Gershwin, I mean, far precede the album era of music. And in fact, I mean, almost precede recorded music in general. A lot of their stuff is meant to be played live, you know? I I think it's a very unique episode in that sense. But we're going to kind of structure the episode a little differently, right? Since we're doing songs that span their career, we're going to kind of walk through their careers over the course of the entire episode with details about the songs interspersed. And, I mean, we'll put Factor Spin at the beginning after a little bit of a a pre-blurb about their humble beginnings, their origins, and then we'll go from there. I'm excited. What do you think of all these songs? I mean, just generally. Were you stoked about the concept? I was very stoked about the concept when you came up with it. Good. Now, I don't know how you discovered Rhapsody in Blue, but... Uh, performed it. Oh, really? Yeah. That's fun. Did you know any of these other songs? Yeah. Nice. I actually was kind of surprised that I think I did too. A few, which we'll, we'll get into when we get there, but definitely not all of them were brand new to me, which was really cool. If you're interested in listening to some of the music that we listen to and are about to talk about, you can find a playlist that we've made with all of these songs on Spotify and on YouTube. We'll link it in the description of this episode, or you can find it attached to the episodes section on spinitpod.com, and it will be right there with it. We're talking about 13 of George and Ira Gershwin's greatest hits. So let's get into it. First of all, let's talk about some of the awards that they've won. Just so you have like an understanding of the significance, the impact they've had on music, and, and you can kind of see the end of the road where their career is headed. I mean, a ton of the awards that we talk about other people winning are named after the Gershwins. Yeah. The Library of Congress awards a Gershwin Prize for popular song. UCLA named their Lifetime Musical Achievement Award for the brothers, and they actually wrote UCLA's fight song. It was a gift to the school. There's a Gershwin Theater on Broadway. There's a hotel, a middle school. I mean, so many other things that bear the Gershwins' names in New York City. Individually, first of all, George Gershwin is estimated to have been the wealthiest composer of all time. His estate actually continued to collect royalties on all of his work until 2020 when a good big chunk of it entered public domain. So that's fun too. That's We don't talk about a lot of music that's in the public domain simply because music takes a really long time to enter the public domain. Yep. So that's cool. Also, all of the works and papers of the Gershwin brothers are preserved in the Library of Congress. George Gershwin earned an Academy Award for Best Original Song in 1937, a posthumous Pulitzer Prize in 1998, and he was inducted into the Long Island Music Hall of Fame in 2006. Eventually. I mean, that's a long time later. (laughs) I don't know when the Long Island Music Hall of Fame was founded, but wow, 70 years after his death is is a long time. (laughs) Ira Gershwin has a namesake literacy center on New York's Lower East Side, which provides language assistance for immigrants and ESL people. He's also earned three Academy Award nominations, and he got his own Pulitzer Prize way back in 1932 
56 years before George did. Both brothers were awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1985, and here's a fact, they were just the fourth and fifth songwriters to receive the medal behind George Cohen, Harry Chapin, and Irving Berlin. Some big names. So that's where their career ends. That's where we're headed. Heck yeah. To that award-winning legacy of a career. But where they started... There's a different place altogether. Brothers, George and Ira Gershwin, you know, they combined to create some of the most iconic songs like Rhapsody and Blue and Summertime and all the ones we're talking about today. Just so many songs and musicals, stuff that even if you haven't heard of it, it's inspired a ton of stuff that you have heard. It's so impressive. Ira was a lyricist. He's the older of the brothers. He was born in 1896. His younger brother, George, was a composer, and he was born two years later in 1898. Their parents were from Eastern European Jewish families, and after they met in Lithuania, they immigrated to New York City and lived in a tenement building in Manhattan. So, I mean, that's a that's a hard lifestyle. Tenement buildings were not fun. <laughs> Ira grew up as an avid reader and writer, kind of what you'd expect out of the lyricist of the two. George was always outside, running around, playing with his friends, and the whole family actually was pretty musically inclined. Their younger sister, Frances, was a performer. Their older brother, Arthur, was a composer as well, and they grew up very close to the Yiddish Theater District, so they spent a lot of time going to shows and having really excellent access to music and live entertainment for the period, which was hugely influential for him. George started studying piano in about 1911. Before too long, he came under the tutelage of Charles Hambitzer, a piano soloist in the Waldorf Astoria Orchestra. George would go on to call Hambitzer his first major musical influence in life, which is, I mean, amazing to have that kind of influence at age 11. When he was 15... George dropped out of high school to be a song plugger on Tin Pan Alley, really at the start of its heyday, to be honest. And we've talked about Tin Pan Alley before, where, you know, career songwriters would go and work for publishing companies to crank out jaunty 1920s pop hit after 1920 pop hit. And it's called Tin Pan Alley because all the windows would be open, right, on a hot New York summer day. And standing in the street below, hearing all the pianos clanking out discordant notes from dozens of buildings. It sounded like someone was hitting a bunch of tin bands. So that's where I got the nickname. But it's, you know, it turned out all these show tunes. That's what George is up to. In 1916, George published his very first song and received 50 cents for it. Woohoo! Flat. They said, hey, this song's great. How would you like two quarters? And he said, yes, please. Shortly thereafter, he started writing roles for player pianos, right? Where you'd put it in the piano and then just let it run and it would play itself. Heck yeah. Aren't those cool? What a cool invention. Can we bring that back? Probably not. It seems super impractical, but wouldn't it be great? Either way, when it was all said and done, George would write more than 140 piano rolls, which is interesting because he couldn't even really orchestrate his own music at the time. He's just got such a specialized kind of skill set. Meanwhile, while George is out there on Tin Pan Alley getting a start in the music business, you know, really planting seeds that would bloom into one of the most successful careers in American music, Ira Gershwin was out there too, working in the family business. Turkish bathhouses. Whoa! I know. Their father owned a Turkish bathhouse, huh. and Ira was like the clerk. So definitely an interesting 
backstory for Ira there. Yeah. He wouldn't get into music himself until 1921, but after that point, he would join George as a lyricist for dozens of different songs, different Broadway shows, and even four films. A biographer once said that when the Gershwins teamed up, the American musical found its native idiom. And that's what we're diving into today. Just like American roots classical music. Heck yeah. Which, I don't know if it had much of a presence before the Gershwins, to be honest. I mean, maybe it did, maybe it didn't, but I think the Gershwins are really a significant part of what took this American style of music to a worldwide, I mean, almost like competitive level. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes that I found while I was researching is from George Gershwin. He said, true music must reflect the thought and aspirations of the people and the time. My people are Americans. My time is today. So I think that's really the the core of what we're going to dive into as we walk through their career and their lives. Like, what was America like at the time they were writing music? How does the music that they're making reflect the situation of the country and the people in it? And oh, there's just so much. Yeah. I'm so excited. It's going to be a cool episode. It is. It already has been. But that's the background. That's the bio. We're ready to jump into their musical career. But before we do so, I figured this was as good a spot as any to put fact or spin so the mixtaper can, you know, try and trick us with truth or lies about George or Ira Gershwin. And we'll see if I can figure out what's real. All right. This could be a really hard one for me. Well, we'll see. I guess we will. Let's bring him on in. Oh, mixtaper. Hey, it's me. The mixtape, happy gopher day. Yes, happy gopher day to you too. I'm sure you're celebrating in your own special way. Of course. I mean, he is my sidekick for my dastardly deeds. That's right. You got an anthropomorphic gopher sidekick. And to celebrate his special day, I kind of let him write this round of factor spin. Uh, what? <laughs> What's that look like? He's been begging me for a chance to dabble in my ultimate dastardly deed. This is the ultimate? Okay. Nothing's more dastardly than playing a game show on a podcast once a week, making you look like a fool. You do sometimes really make me look like a fool, and I'm worried that you're going to do the same this week. Well, if it is, just know it was my anthropomorphic gopher who did it this week. Okay. And if you don't look like a fool and break his spirit, well, that's on you. It's his special day, so. I know. So you want me to take a dive? No, no, no. Don't take a dive, but, you know, don't try too hard either. Hmm. Okay. Getting some mixed messages, but that's fine. I think there could be a lot of interesting facts about George and Ira out here, but I don't know what's, like, normal for them in the 19-teens through 30s and 40s. I mean... That's our time frame, more or less, and there could be a lot of really unbelievable sounding stuff that they really did or something in there. I don't know. Let's see what you got. Well, before we jump in the George and Ira Gershwin, the gopher wanted to play a special round of fast-fired facts. Oh, so is this part of the four, or is... No, this is bonus. Oh, boy. Kind of a warm-up. Bonus. Yeah, this is fast-fired fact. Your two options are Groundhog... Or gopher. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I have to tell you whether this is true about a groundhog or a gopher? Yes. I'm going to be so bad at this. <laughs> oh, gosh. Does this count towards my score for the week? We'll see how well you do. Uh-oh. <laughs> Here we go. Starting off, are part of the pocket mouse, kangaroo mouse, and kangaroo rat family? Pocket mouse, kangaroo rat? I mean, you're just putting marsupial words together. But marsupial <laughs> feels like it's kind of a clue. I'm going to say that's a gopher thing. That is a gopher. Sweet. How many of these are there? How many do I have to get right? There's an undetermined amount. I'm not going to tell you. Well, shoot. Okay, well. They are between 4 and 14 inches long. 4 and 14 inches. 4 inches is so small. I think that one is a gopher. Gopher! Good job. You see, this isn't too hard. It's not too bad. I've seen a lot of ground 
groundhogs in my yard growing up, and those suckers can be pretty big. Have large protruding teeth that can be seen even with their mouths closed. Oh, I know this one from Winnie the Pooh. Gopher. Gopher. Good job. Are omnivores, meaning they eat everything. Well, not everything, everything, but I'm going to say that one is a protruding teeth would kind of make me think it's a gopher, but I think it's a groundhog. This one, still a gopher. Darn. Minnesota is nicknamed the blank state. The gopher state. Good job, good job. Had a starring role in Caddyshack. Caddyshack, that's a gopher. Hangs out with Christopher Robin. <laughs> it's a gopher again. And are these all gopher? Can write code. Can write code? Yeah. Like computer code? Yeah. What? Well, they've all been gopher so far. This is the moment you would probably try and trick me by saying groundhog. But it is gopher day. But it's also groundhog day. Uh-oh. This is for all the marbles right here. All the... No, what? <laughs> I think this one is a groundhog. Ooh, and for all the marbles, this was a gopher. Oh, no. <laughs> they were all gophers. I thought maybe it would be a groundhog because you know how we celebrate this silly little holiday where we make the groundhog look at its shadow and predict the weather. I thought it would be very much like an American kind of thing if we said, wonder if we can make the groundhog write code to predict the weather instead. <laughs> and then they just like did something scientifically to it to like, wow, look, he typed a bracket. Now he can write code. I don't know. What do you mean can write code? What, let's get, what's this really? The mascot of the Go programming language is the Go Gopher. Okay. Well, that, <laughs> is Go even a popular programming language? I've never heard of it. Yeah. It's a statistically typed, compiled, high-level programming language designed by Google. It's syntactically similar to C, oh. but also has memory safety, garbage collection, structural typing, and CSP-style concurrency. Isn't C, like, super outdated now? Not really. I don't know. I don't know. Either way, I'm pretty proud of how that went. These were all gopher, and the gopher put a comment here at the bottom that says, uh, we don't acknowledge groundhogs on this podcast. I guess not. Okay, well, that's groundhog or gopher. Six for eight, I feel like that should be a point for me. Well, there was nine of them, so. Were there? Six for nine is two-thirds, so. Oh, wait, no, I skipped one. There was eight. <laughs> okay, I was going to say, I was pretty sure I was keeping count. Sorry, I forgot I purposely skipped one. Six for eight should be a point, I think. Yeah, well, except all the money was on the last one and you got it wrong, so sorry. Oh, uh, iffy. But now into George and Ira Gershwin. Yes, please. Let's get to the boys here. Teach me more. Will I Gershwin or will I Gersh lose? George and Ira is not their real names. Ooh, George and Ira are not their real names. What are their real names? Gershwin, uh, George, I guess I should clarify, George <laughs> was born Jacob. Yeah, they're both Gershwin. And Ira was born Israel. I see. I really, I can't even lie to you. It's a holiday. I know this is true. Darn it. This is a fact. Darn it. Sorry. They also, I know this because they also changed their last name when they immigrated. Uh, they were Gershevitzes for a while, and then they kind of Americanized it further. And uh, You didn't have it in your rundown. I didn't because, I, I don't know. I just, I knew we'd have a lot to talk about, and so I wanted to kind of keep things moving, and I excluded it, but here we are. My apologies. I think this is a fact. I'll lock that in. This one's a wash, so we're just going to skip all this. Cut it. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, oh, we might have to retool some things around the first part. You know what? That went so poorly for you since, you know, all the money was on the last one. I think we will count that as our first round of Factor Spin. You lost, so that's one point, Gopher. Good job, Gopher. Oh, man. <laughs> but I wanted to keep the real names in there. Too bad you have to find a way to bring it up later. That's what you get. <laughs> well, I... Uh... 
I was just trying to be honest. I couldn't keep up the lie. And on the gopher's day, how could you? Okay, well, if that's going to count as one of the rounds. But I got six out of eight. Oh, come on. Yeah, but you missed the one that mattered. I'm sorry. I don't make the rules. The gopher does. That's not... But the, <laughs> whatever. I don't believe in that. That's so annoying. Did you know they were both also painters? Interesting. What are they painting? While they're writing music or before or after? While. While. Okay. Yeah. What are their subjects that they're painting? Landscapes, people, scenes, abstract stuff? Uh, a lot of people. Okay. How'd they get started with this? As kids, they were both into, you know, drawing and painting and just kind of was a hobby that they did. Just kind of stuck with them? Yeah. Have you seen the paintings? Who's the better painter? I don't know if I've seen any of Ira's paintings. Oh, you should look one up and tell me who's the better painter. Uh, that's what I'm doing. Judge it on the spot right now. Probably Ira. Ooh, okay. Hot take, maybe. I don't know. We'll see if I agree with you if this is true when I've answered. Any other details I should know about? I'll take your silence to mean no. They both collaborated on a painting. Oh, really? They made it into the gallery at the Michigan School of Music, Theater, and Dance. Michigan? I don't know. If, do they have any ties to Michigan? Uh... Oh, actually, they do. I think I read about this a little bit. Not the painting part, I don't know. But their entire collection of works is like on loan to the University of Michigan right now for them to do studies and analysis and cataloging and all kinds of like really interesting stuff is happening with the Gershwin's work at Michigan. So that's the tie. That would make sense. Well, there you go. In any case... Were you about to lock in an answer? Oh, you were going to say more about the painting. I was about to lock in an answer. It's called Soaking Up the Sun. That reminds me of that other song from like the early 2000s. Soaking Up the Sun is a beautiful title. It's a picture of some animals in a meadow just enjoying the sun. Just soaking it up. I'm surprised it's not something in blue. Well, I'm going to say that this is a fact. I think the Gershwin brothers were artists in both senses of the word, musical and visual. I'm going to lock in fact. Well, here's the painting that I was talking about. Oh, no. <laughs> no! Go ahead and describe it to the audience. No! Well, the painting is several gophers sitting in a small pond, soaking up the sun. This is a spin. But, but that's just the only part that's a spin, right? Is that specific painting. The painting and the fact that they worked together on a painting and that it made it into the Michigan Music Theater and Dance gallery okay so they are both so they are both painters oh yeah that part was true but that part was too obviously true darn it yeah i guess so well you did a really great job putting it in the michigan thing because i was surprised to read about the university in michigan taking all of their their stuff and their works but it was i mean memorable enough to stick with me that i remembered it and that really sold me i mean i was already sold because i figured they probably both painted what else did you do in 1911 but darn ah wow that makes me mad i can't believe it hey remember i didn't do this <laughs> yeah okay okay so let me just to recap so far I got six out of eight right on the first one, and I got it wrong. <laughs> and then on the second one, they're both painters, which is true, but I got it wrong. Yep. And now we're on to the third one. George credits an illness to his success. Now that's interesting. What illness is that? Hantavirus pulmonary syndrome. Okay. What's that? Something lungy? Lungy and stomachy. Oh. Did he have this? Indeed. Well, what, what's it do? What are the side effects and causes, really? It causes flu-like symptoms... Such as fever, headaches, chills, muscle pains, vomiting, stuff like that. The usuals. The, the usuals. As well as 
gastric dysfunctions and nausea. Oh. The symptoms at first appeared mild, but gradually worsened over time. How did gastric phenomena help George Gershwin on his songwriting career? I guess he credits it to his success. I don't know. Yeah, well, he referred to it as composer's stomach. Composer's stomach? Yeah. Why? What? Because he was stressed out about writing so much? Or how is this related to composing? Well, whenever he'd start to feel nauseous and gastric and dysfunctional, he would have his greatest epiphanies in composing, I guess. Really? So when he got a a big old belly ache, he knew that something good was going to happen. He uses the word breakthrough. So like usually like if he was really struggling with something or he couldn't get something right, usually one of these fits would bring about the breakthrough he needed. And so he called it his composer's stomach. Wow. I love that. It's like old people like sitting on the porch and they can feel the weather with their knees. (laughs) It's like that. He gets like a a premonition with his gut. He knows that something great's about to come. That's really fun. How often does this happen? Like once per song? I don't know. It just says that they first appeared in his youth and worsened over time. But despite his health struggles, he continued to work tirelessly. In fact, he composed some of his most famous works during this time period. So, you know, maybe... Rhapsody in Blue had a couple composer stomach moments. Who knows? Had a couple of fart moments. <laughs> yeah. Wonder if I can hear him. However, over time, it did take a toll on his overall quality of life, I guess, as they got worse. I would imagine. George Gershwin lived, I mean, a, a rough life, all things considered. His death, which we'll get to eventually, was it's a little rough. But I think this is interesting. I'm going to say that I believe it. I think that's a really cool ability to have. I, I think that'd be, I mean, obviously painful and not ideal in any way. But what a unique story. I like it, and I'm going to say it's a fact. George Gershwin, tummy ache survivor. <laughs> Actually, I think it's part of what led to his death. But <laughs> Well, I thought it was the brain tumor that led to his death, but sure. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I hate you. What do you hate me? What do you hate me for? I'm I'm just the messenger this week. The gopher has done this to you. I've just received a link that is uh <laughs> that is informing me that hantavirus pulmonary syndrome is a common disease in gophers. <laughs> <laughs> this is a spin. It's a spin, but it's true about gophers. So do gophers credit their success to this disease? Yeah, I would say so. That's exciting. Do they have major compositional breakthroughs when they experience gastric dysfunction? Oh, well, that part's still true about George Gershwin. What? George Gershwin did have gastric dysfunction that he called his composer stomach, but it was more of a thing that caused him to not be able to work, and he felt he got the dysfunction from being a composer. Wow. The stress, as kind of like where you started off, the stress of all the composing led to him having nausea and gastric dysfunction. But Yeah, and it just happens to also be true about gophers? <laughs> in a certain sense, yeah. <laughs> I can't believe it. The coincidences in this episode being gopher day, it feels kind of unreal right now. Yeah, I had to Google gopher stomach illness and uh <laughs> you didn't have to well i didn't have to but that's what i did you could have just let it be true you know yeah you're not doing too great you're uh 0 for 3 so far Boo-hoo. i don't know about all that this one is the first miss that i feel like is legitimate because it's all about this hantavirus pulmonary syndrome and the breakthroughs after the stomach ache things was false like this one feels like a genuine spin the other two i think i got right but that's neither here nor there well it is there but it's not here you know if i was impartial i couldn't maybe see why the first one would annoy you but the, uh, the these last two have been definite misses okay well what's coming up last he had a custom composing desk built Ooh, fancy schmancy furniture what features does a custom composing desk have that a normal desk would be lacking what does a composer need 
It had special drawers mm. and ink well built into it. That seems like a pain. And a built-in pencil sharpener. Whoa, that's cool. And that seems useful. How much did he? Mm, how much did he spend on this custom composing desk? Time to play everybody's yep. second favorite spinning game show. Guess that dollar amount. Yep. I don't know anything about the price of desks in the early 20th century. But I'm going to say he probably spent $200 on it. Uh, maybe. Oh, do you not know? Oh, I have no idea. Okay. Well, it's possible <laughs> that he spent $200 on it. But what, I mean, special drawers? Did he just want that? For holding his music, his, like, sheets and... But why couldn't normal drawers do that? Wrong sizes and stuff? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know either. Okay. So, he, did he compose much on this desk? Are there any well-known Gershwin works that came from this tabletop? Or I guess, like, when did he buy it? Because I can probably assume that most stuff after he bought it came from the desk i don't know when he got it actually oh okay mysterious it says it was used by him while working on porgy and besk in the 1930s Mm, that's cool now the nice thing i'm finding about this fact is there's almost no way it's true about a gopher that's what they say i don't think gophers need desks for anything it's also one last detail before you go down the lock and in rabbit hole. Uh-oh. Last details can be dangerous, as we prove with the painting thing. It actually sits today in the Gershwin room in the Library of Congress, so you could go see it. I was curious about its current location, and I almost asked. That is cool. Ooh, I like that. That's the smart place for it. I think that makes a lot of sense. Sure. Uh, everything checks out with this fact. I'm going to say it's probably true. I think... Obviously, as a wealthy, the world's wealthiest composer, allegedly, apparently. I think he can afford a nice desk on which to do his work. Seems like something you'd want to invest in. I can, in fact. Yeah, can I get one right? No, no, you tell me. Here's a picture of the desk. No, that's a picture of just a gopher at a desk. I'm so sorry. Well, you can send a picture of a gopher at the desk all you want, but that doesn't make this untrue. You're right, because this is a true fact. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> thank goodness that's the best picture i could find of the actual desk <laughs> so little the actual picture of the desk is like like an inch tall it's clipped out of a image of a newspaper from september 2nd 1979 that was on a new york times page that i'd have to subscribe to to get full access to the article wow. and that wasn't about to happen no fair <laughs> enough well yeah we'll put this picture as well as basking in the sun and this other gopher at the desk it'll be up on our socials at spin it pod official on instagram and at spin it pod on x and everywhere else man i thought you were gonna get shut out by the gopher on their first attempt that would have been so so embarrassing it would have i'm glad i at least got three out of these four right even though i only got one point it's fine whatever it's a special day it's his holiday i'll let the gopher take this win good job gopher he's so happy he's gonna go celebrate good great i hope he does may gastrointestinal dysfunction remain far from him for all the days of his gopher life how long do gophers live i thought that as soon as i said it and i don't know and i don't really want to know uh-oh one up to three years <laughs> and if he was born if he joined us on episode 45 which would have been in year one well he's coming up on two years old and he was he wasn't a baby when we got him no this might be his last gopher day with us <laughs> oh, no. i'm glad he got that win i, I hope that was really special for him <laughs> oh, no i'm glad he's left already yeah he's not around to hear this we should just try and make his last year as memorable as possible the year of healing maybe that'll save him maybe we can only hope oh no okay well i'm out of here to go celebrate with my buddy so have fun with the rest of the episode loser until next week yeah thanks 
Oh, gosh. Well, there he goes. That was a chaotic round of factor spin. I did not expect so many gopher spins. Welcome back, Connor. I can't believe you didn't see the gopher spins coming. It was gopher week. I can't believe I didn't either. I guess I should have known. But let's get into it. Let's walk through the Gershwin's career. Now, we're not going to talk about Rhapsody in Blue in full again. I've learned my lesson. <laughs> about that one. Oh, yes we are <laughs> we're gonna talk about it we'll hit all the bullet points when we get to it over the course of his life but i figured it'd be fun if we walk through the, the songs we're going to talk about chronologically from earliest to latest sure sure sure, sure. and kind of followed the arc of the era of gershwin's and also just a, another little side note at the top of the career song list they wrote a lot of songs you know george and ira they they were quite a prolific writing pair so there are a lot of songs out there that we could have picked from i scoured the internet and playlists and lists people had made of rankings and i tried to find 13 of the most emblematic and iconic pieces of work that the Gershwins put out. So I hope we've kind of captured a pretty good scope here. I think we have, just in terms of style and, and time period and fame. But hey, if you've got another Gershwin song that you love that we didn't talk about, send it our way, because I want to hear it. Heck yeah. I'm a fan. This episode is fully, like, turned me on to the Gershwins. But the first one we're talking about is Swanee. Swanee came out in 1920. It's George Gershwin's first national commercial hit song. And in fact, it went on to be the biggest selling work of his entire career. Swanee charted in 1920 for eight weeks, nine of which it was at number one. And it sold more than a million copies of sheet music, which isn't a stat we have for most contemporary music today. But it also sold more than two million records. So that's a lot of music. That is a lot of music. Now, Gershwin guy, I mean, you're the one that introduced Gershwin to this podcast. So I'm dubbing you Gershwin guy, slightly ironically, but... I'll take that. Yeah. Okay. Gershwin guy, did you know Swanee? Did I know Swanee? I mean, you could say it all you want. Did I mean, did I know it? I own it. But no, I didn't know it. <laughs> no, you didn't know it. Oh, okay. A new one. I thought this song was really, really fun. Swanee got stuck in my head a lot more than I anticipated it doing. You know, the first time you listen to an instrumental song or a classical piece, you never know how much of it's going to stick with you, how much of it you're going to follow. And I obviously gave this massive like two and a quarter hour playlist a lot of spins in the time leading up to this episode and, and swanee was one that just kept coming back to my head while i was doing other things it would just do 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 just pop right into my brain and it was so fun yeah but it's only two minutes and 18 seconds long of the recording we listened to anyway yeah it's a it's a faster one it is compared to some of the other ones on the on the list that we're going to be doing here <laughs> yeah yeah and swanee see swanee does have lyrics i chose to include an instrumental one on the playlist because the lyrics weren't by Ira Gershwin, actually. The lyrics to Swanee were written by Irving Caesar. Gershwin wrote the music in 1919 for a review, and it was meant to be a parody song at first, which obviously is completely lost on the listener without the lyrics, I think. But the lyrics reference the Suwannee River in Georgia, and it's a song about longing to come home and be around family in places that you love, which is really sweet. And I don't know if that's necessarily conveyed by the music. And at first, actually, Swanee was a big dance number. 60 different chorus girls would do choreography on a dark stage with electric lights on their shoes to Swanee in 1920. That has to be the logistics of that has to be so complicated. Yeah. I mean, we were impressed when people nowadays wore lights on stage like Sufjan Stevens or the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I can't even imagine like walking into a theater in 1920. I light up a cigar at my seat because no one cared back then and take a 
a swig of my bathtub distilled alcohol because it was prohibition season, <laughs> right? And I, I sit down and I get comfy. I look up at the stage and all of a sudden, boom, all the lights go out and people with light up shoes <laughs> come in, start kicking. That's so cool. But yeah, Swanee. Other famous covers were done by Bing Crosby, The Temptations, and even The Muppets. Nice. The Muppets? The Muppets. Yeah, so you may have heard, Swanee, if you've uh, perused The Muppets discography much. And then we go into a song, uh, you know, in George's career, and hardly you could even call it a song, but it's the total opposite of Swanee. Jaunty, happy, little reflective song into Blue Monday is what we're talking about next. Two years after the success of Swanee, George Gershwin takes on way more ambitious projects. In 1922, he writes Blue Monday. Straight up, it's a jazz chamber opera. We're talking about a half hour long chamber opera. (laughs) What did you think of Blue Monday? Do you do a lot of opera music? No, I'm not really a big opera guy, despite really enjoying Phantom of the Opera. (laughs) Yeah, huh, hmm, interesting. Well, I actually have been to a few operas. Really? Yeah, I really like the medium. It's it's definitely different. I feel like seeing an opera is different than listening to opera music, though. Oh, 100%. And I felt that listening to Blue Monday several times. Every time it came on, I was like, oh, Blue Monday. I got to like try and follow who's what character and what's <laughs> happening with the thing. Because normally, you know, in an opera, even in an English opera, sometimes with all the vibrato and the singing, which is, I mean, technically so impressive, but it can be a little hard to understand lyrically. And so it's like watching a play with subtitles. They'll put a lot of times the lyrics up on a screen or down low. But this time you don't have any of that. If you're just listening to it, you got to go in blind. But for Blue Monday... George Gershwin obviously wrote the music, which is considered to be one of the first pieces of symphonic jazz to exist, period. Pretty cool. I know, right? Groundbreaking. Even in the second year of his like breakout career. The libretto to the opera was written by Buddy De Silva, and it's an interesting musical with a bit of a an interesting history. It's 1922. All the characters in the musical are black. Problematically, in 1922, this meant that it was mostly performed by white actors in blackface. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Has not aged well conceptually. Classic old people thing to do. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it definitely uh, was not unique for the time period, but really, it's aged like milk, you know? Yeah, 100 years later, 100-year-old milk. Oh my gosh, 102 years old milk. Whoa. Think of how many Blue Mondays have elapsed since then. 500? Think about how many... Times we've doubled since 1922. In 100 years? Every time we've doubled has been since 1922. It's pretty crazy. It is. Now, Blue Monday wasn't George's only African-American piece. One of his most famous Broadway shows that we'll get to a little later on in the career, Porgy and Bess, also features black characters, but it was originally performed with a black cast. So by the end of his career, we kind of moved that direction a little bit. But Blue Monday, not so much. Now, the story... (laughs) I tried to follow. It's complicated a little bit. You can hear the character Joe say in the opening, it's a story of love and jealousy. Uh, Joe and Vi are together, hanging out in a cafe with a cast of characters. But then Tom, this fella, he gets some alone time with Vi and he tries to win her over. You know, he's like, your man is is a gambler and a loser. But she's like, oh no, no way. Meanwhile, Joe finds out he wins a ton of money. He's straight up just going to run away, but for some reason, he he can't just tell Vi about it. She's going to get upset. And he gets a telegram that he thinks is from his mom, but then Tom finds out about this. He wants to break them up. He tells Vi it's from a secret admirer, secret woman. Vi and Joe get into a fight. Joe gets shot. And it turns out the telegram was from Joe's sister. 
informing him that their mother had been dead for a few years. I mean, so that really is the bluest of Mondays for everyone involved. Joe straight up finds out his mom has died and gets shot. Tom doesn't get the girl. Vi shoots Joe. It's a mess. It's a whole mess. It's a whole mess. Yeah. Critical opinion of Blue Monday was kind of split, because obviously the format of a, of a minstrel show was quickly becoming a thing of the past, but other people saw it as kind of a foreshadowing of the musical things that George Gershwin will be capable of. One critic said, In it, we see the first gleam of a new American musical art. Other, more modern critics would call it premature, compared to Porgy and Bess, which is, of course, its obvious point of comparison. But that's Blue Monday. Blue Monday. Got the Blue Monday blues. On to Blue Tuesday. Well, we're not on to Blue Tuesday, but oh. we're on to a song I know you love, and that's Rhapsody in Blue. It is a bit of a blue stretch. Rhapsody in Blue, Blue Tuesday. We're coming back to it. This is the first time we've repeated a song, I think, straight up. Well, I mean, we've... We had Blondie where we did, like, the same song, but a different artist. Heart of Glass, yeah. But I don't. This is the first time that we've done the exact same song. Yeah, we talked about Rhapsody in Blue as your surprise pick on our 45th episode, <laughs> and, and you just as a refresher described your life like it was a Looney Tunes episode to the tune of this song. It was my descent into madness montage, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the more that I listen to it, the less that I feel that. I mean, at first, as you <laughs> described it to me, and I was listening along live, I was following all the beats of your story. I was like, yes, definitely, I can hear it, I can see it. But then as I listened to it, it started to kind of become its own entity in my mind. At one point earlier this week, I just... You had your own descent into madness. I did. I just texted you and I said, Rhapsody in Blue has been stuck in my head all day. And for an hour, I was just sitting there going, do-do-do-do-do-do. Like, it was just there. <laughs> oh, that's the part you do? Mine's always... It's all. It was all there. But yeah, that's where we met the gopher. Yeah. Yeah. Rhapsody in Blue. I know we talked about a lot of the details already but i didn't want to leave people that showed up to be excited about a gershwin episode hanging yeah we've we've gotten a lot of new audience members since since episode 45 yeah no doubt welcome rhapsody in blue was composed in 1924 and it's kind of this classical jazz fusion that's become really a tentpole track in the american songbook and really a defining piece of the jazz age so i believe i said earlier i played this song you played this song you probably mentioned it the first time up yeah i feel like i did did you play the clarinet because that's the best part of the song no i was on the trumpet i know you were and that's not the best part of the song it's a pretty good part though it's a fine part but there can only be one best especially when you get to the oh gosh that part's really fun yeah <laughs> now rhapsody in blue was commissioned by Paul Whiteman after he was impressed by working with George Gershwin and hearing Blue Monday. So he listened to Blue Monday and he said, wow, this man has potential. I need a song. I need a song that celebrates the birth of President Abraham Lincoln. Heck yeah. <laughs> and that is what Rhapsody in Blue is about. It was supposed to be a piece commemorating Lincoln's birthday, which is an ironic next place to go from <laughs> Minstrel Show. But, you know, he did it. Now I can't help but imagine the gopher dressed like Abe Lincoln. On a penny. Yeah. <laughs> I would just imagine him standing there. But yeah, I like him on a penny even better. The gopher <laughs> penny. Good luck. George actually came up with a lot of the rhythmic ideas for Rhapsody in Blue on a train ride. A lot of the raps. Yeah, a lot of the raps were from trains. We actually, yeah, we've already given George Gershwin a Splendid Award. He's already the best rap for RHAP, Rhapsody in Blue. So this is our best rap again. But we talked just a couple songs ago about how I love train-inspired drums and rhythms. Gershwin said, It was on the train with its steely rhythms, its rattle bang that's so often stimulating to a composer. 
I frequently hear music in the very heart of the noise, and there I suddenly heard, and even saw on paper, the complete construction of the Rhapsody from beginning to end. The full rap. Yeah, full rap. He saw the whole thing. He said, no new themes came to me, so he must not have had any gastrointestinal disasters. But he said, I worked on the thematic material already in my mind and tried to conceive the composition as a whole. I heard it as a sort of musical kaleidoscope of America, of our vast melting pot, of our unduplicated national pep, (laughs) of our metropolitan madness. By the time I reached Boston, I had a definite plot of the piece as distinguished from its actual substance. So there you have Rhapsody in Blue. It's an anthem of metropolitan madness and unduplicated national pep. Heck yeah. Right. Obviously, it would go on to be his most popularly known work, I do believe. And right around 1924 is when Ira Gershwin enters the picture in earnest. Woohoo! And he and George worked together on their very first Broadway show, Lady Be Good. But we're skipping over Lady Be Good, and we're skipping straight to 1925, Concerto in F. Now, this is a behemoth of a song. (laughs) He put Rhapsody in Blue into our lives, and it's like a 16-minute, well, Rhapsody. This is a three-movement concerto, which, I mean, is just expansive. It's more than 30 minutes long. Yeah, but it's broken up. It is. You know, at this point, George has a few hits under his belt, starting to become a very well-known, very reputable name in American music. And in 1925, he wanted to write a piece that broke away from his jazz roots a little more. You know, we talked about how symphonic jazz musicals are are showing up now, and Rhapsody in Blue is like jazz-infused, and he just wanted to branch out. So he started to write this two-piano score that was much more of a traditional concerto in, of course, the key of F, which is what led to the very aptly named Concerto in F. He wrote the three movements over the course of three whole months, a quarter of a year from July to September, and he wrote it in a shack at the Chautauqua Institution where he had orders that he was strictly not to be disturbed until at least 4 p.m. every day. He holed himself up in his little cabin with his little desk, maybe. I don't think it was here, but if it was, he would have been. And then he just worked and worked and worked. Nobody could bug him until 4 p.m. When it was done, he used his own money to hire a 55-piece orchestra to play through his draft of Concerto in F so that he could hear the whole thing come together and so he could make revisions to it and change what he wanted to change, which is such an unthinkable thing nowadays, but very cool. Nowadays, people just write it in like a computer software to hear it back. Garage Band. Yeah. It's the 1925 equivalent of playing your song in Garage Band. He literally, he had he had Cabin Band. Cabin Band. Yeah. That sounds like a cool jug band kind of situation. Yeah. But it's like an orchestra. I'm sure they didn't play it in the cabin. I'm sure they went to a, a performance space of some sort. I really want it to be in the cabin. 55 people <laughs> crammed into this tiny little cabin trying to play Concerto in F. <laughs> what did you think about Concerto in F? It's got its moments for me. Are we talking about the whole thing or are we just talking about the first Allegro, right? No, the whole thing. You want to talk about the whole thing? But I have so many things to say about each piece. Well, you could say things about each piece in, in specific. Yeah, I really liked it. I found it surprisingly listenable for its monstrous length. It's long enough to be an entire album. Really, we've talked about albums shorter than this. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's the order of the sections. The way things kind of go is it starts off with an allegro piece faster, right? More up-tempo 
Then we move into the adagio middle section that's slower and more drawn out and emotional. The third part of the song is the allegro agitato, and it reincorporates some of the motifs from the first two parts to wrap up the whole piece nicely and give it a good sense of closure. Yeah. Here's a fun fact, too. I mean, we talked about how Gershwin's written all these songs. Concerto in F was one of the first pieces Gershwin, I mean, first of all, composed and orchestrated all on his own. On the rest of his previous pieces, he had to get help for writing a lot of the music and scoring it and stuff. This one, he had grown and developed enough in his craft to do it all by himself. All by myself. Yeah, that song did not come out until years after Gershwin's death. Spoiler (laughs) alert, sorry. He didn't make it. What? No! (laughs) Too soon! (laughs) Yeah, I know. Gershwin actually never recorded Concerto in F himself, but he did play it on a live radio broadcast in 1931, and some of that audio was able to be preserved. So that's really fascinating. He played all the instruments. One at a time. (laughs) And here's what the second chair violin will sound like. Yeah, no, not quite like that. You know how much longer that would take to play through the whole thing for each instrument? Oh, ages deconstruct my gershwin a deconstructed concerto honestly sounds cool conceptually kind of does i know what we'll put in connor's hippin and hoppin concerto oh a concerto oh my gosh <laughs> it was staring me in the face and I missed it. <laughs> up next we're doing an- another little time jump to 1927 into strike up the band another one i've played really is it you knew this one mm-hmm. intimately. Indeed. Your mouth has made the shapes that are required for this song. Some of, not all the shapes. Most of the shapes. Won't even say most. A few of the shapes. I was simply one mouth shape in a sea of mouths shaping. Sure. <laughs> uh, you know, it takes a village. But Strike Up the Band is our first proper song with bits by both George and Ira Gershwin. Strike Up the Band is a Broadway musical. Yep. It features music by George and lyrics by Ira. The original book was by George Kaufman, but a more popular revised version was written by Maury Riskind. The original show, Strike Up the Band, do you know what it's about? I'm sure I did at one point, but not off the top of my head. I don't know. It sounds like a wild musical. I want to go see it. If I ever have the chance to go see Strike Up the Band, I'll go do it. Because the original musical is a satire about a cheese manufacturer who decides to sponsor a war on Switzerland (laughs) to get free advertising for Swiss cheese. That's amazing. Yeah, it sounds amazing to you and me here a hundred years later. But back in the day, it was not landing with audiences. They were not clicking with Swiss cheese. A lot of plot holes, if you will. We could request a license to perform Strike Up the Band and do it ourselves. <laughs> yeah, we could. We could We could strike up our own band. I'm looking at it right now. Really? How much does the license cost? We would need a bass, a cello, harp, two horns, a flute, a piccolo, two flutes, sorry. An oboe, two clarinets, a bassoon, a trombone, two trumpets, two violas, three violins, and in the percussion section, oh gosh, a duck call, field drum, glockenspiel, grancasa, a kit, a military field snare, a piatti, a tambourine, a temple block, a triangle, a tippany, a vibraphone, wind whistle, wood block, and xylophone. That's all we need. So Okay, so if you're out there listening to this and you play any of those instruments, reach out to us at thespinitpodcast at gmail.com, and uh, we might have a hookup here. Included is uh, 30 
vocal books, one piano vocal score for Act 1, one piano vocal score for Act 2, and a study guide. That's great. I think we'll need all the studying we can get for this. Anyway, Riskin takes the musical, and he turns it into a silly musical about a chocolate maker having a wacky dream. Oh, Willy Wonka style. Yeah, and he said that turning this cheese musical into a chocolate musical was like trying to rewrite War and Peace for the Three Stooges, <laughs> which is an incredible comparison, and it makes me want to see the new version, too. Now, this song is way more of a traditional vaudeville-style musical. George was actually very heavily inspired by Gilbert and Sullivan, some iconic musical theater names. That is iconic. If you've been around musicals at all, you know the names Gilbert and Sullivan. Probably. Or if you know people named Gilbert and Sullivan, you also know those names. Probably. But I just, I mean, look at the diversity in his catalog we've seen over seven years. Jazz, operas, classical, vaudeville, fusions of any and all of these. I mean, it's just been so cool to listen straight through as his music evolves and never hear the same thing twice. It's true. Yeah. The overture to strike up the band is one of the pieces that's kind of emerged as a standalone work, which is the one we listened to and are kind of half talking about today. And I think the overture actually stayed pretty constant between the two versions of the show. So that's a nice feature too. The musical also features the song Strike Up the Band, which was another one of the Gershwin's most famous works. And that's the one that George Gershwin ended up gifting to UCLA as their fight song. Heck yeah. They changed a couple of words, but it became the fight song. So yeah. And we don't have to do as much of a time jump this time to get from Strike Up the Band to our next song that we're talking about. Oh, another one of my absolute favorites from this selection of songs. That is Swonderful, another 1927 song. Swonderful. Swonderful, Smarvelous. It is another George and Ira Broadway classic. It first appeared in the 1927 musical Funny Face, and it was performed by Adela Stair and Alan Kearns. It's very much another jazz standard that's made its way into the American songbook and popular music canon. It even has an episode of Gilmore Girls named after it. That's awesome. Isn't it? I know. But obviously, that came much, much later. Prior to that, Bing Crosby, Fred Astaire, Audrey Hepburn, Doris Day, Dean Martin, Ella Fitzgerald, and plenty more have covered Swonderful. What did you think? It's the return of Ella Fitzgerald, at least the version we listened to. It is the return of Ella Fitzgerald. We listened to her cover of it, and man, it's just an excellent song. It annoys me that they say Smarvelous. Does Smarvelous bother you? Yeah, like, Swonderful kind of works, I guess. Yeah, because it's wonderful. Yeah. It's wonderful. Well, you can say the same thing about It's Marvelous. Yeah, Smarvelous. But something about the way they say Smarvelous. Like, saying Swonderful, the way they say it, you can clearly tell they're going for It's Wonderful. But then they just go, Smarvelous, and it's like, it just sounds like you're saying Smarvelous. Doesn't sound like you're, like, slurring into it at all. Oh, got it. Like, there's there's not enough of a break in between? Yeah. The one that messed me up was exceptional. <laughs> Every time I hear that, I go, what? Oh. <laughs> and then I remember what song I'm listening to. <laughs> but I, I talked about, I think on the Ella Fitzgerald episode, that there's kind of a sweet spot for a lyric writing, where if you go really old, you get a lot of really fun lyrics. And then in the, in the middle part, you know, the 1950s, early 60s, you kind of start to see a real dip. You get a lot of Smarveluses. Well, no, Smarvelous is great. That's the good stuff. Oh. The 50s and 60s, you get a lot of, uh, you get a lot of dips in lyrical wow factor, I think. No wow. And then it comes back later on. But I think Smarvelous is in that first category of great lyrics.
works even though it's old. Like it holds up. My dear is four leaf clover time. From now on, my heart's working overtime. They don't make them like that anymore. This one's also going on my playlist. And maybe even the playlist. Whoa. It could happen. It's wonderful as a strong contender. But we'll get there. First, we got to get to Paris. Well, we are Americans, so. Yeah, we'll be Americans in Paris. Just like that Gershwin song. Uh, what was it called? Uh, The one from 1928. Frenchman in America? No, 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 no. Close, close. I think it was called An American in France? That's pretty darn close. Maybe somewhere a little more specific in France. Mm, you're right. Yeah. An American in Nice. Yes, that's got to be it. Yes, yeah, someone. <laughs> an American. <laughs> no, it's probably an American in Paris. It's probably the one I'm thinking about. Only if you're lame and mainstream media follower. What? Okay. An American in Paris. George Gershwin actually spent some time in Paris in the mid-20s. Whoa. Yeah, for real. He was an American in Paris, and he tried to study composition, but he actually got turned down by a lot of potential tutors. They're like, nah, bruh. Yeah, kind of, but not for the reason you think. They thought that too much formal training would mess him up, would ruin him and his jazzy style. Oh. They said, you're too unique, you're too special, don't add paint to a masterpiece. That's a really kind way of being like we don't want to teach you no it's legitimate or maybe he was better than them and they were like oh we don't want to mess you up but really they're like oh man if i teach him he's gonna realize that he's better than me i mean it maybe is a part of that nadia bullinger said what could i give you that you haven't already got dang pianist maurice ravel said why become a second-rate Ravel when you're already a first-rate Gershwin. Although, that may be apocryphal. Who knows? Still a fun quote. <laughs> My point is, I mean, how exceptional, right? That you can be that good that people refuse to tutor you because they don't want to mess you up. They don't want to ruin the magic that is George Gershwin. But while he was over there, he composed the aptly named American in Paris. Heck yeah. Which I really have fun with a lot. I, I like the car horn kind of sounds in it. I like the just general flow and style of this song. I'm a big fan of this one too. Yeah. It's classified as a tone poem, which is a term I don't think we've heard before on this podcast. You ever heard of a tone poem? Heard of it? I own it. So no. But no, I haven't heard of it. <laughs> no, okay. Well, a tone poem, definitionally, I looked it up. It's also known as a symphonic poem. It's a piece of orchestral music, usually in a single continuous movement, which illustrates or evokes the content of a poem, short story, novel, painting, landscape, or other non-musical source. So that's what he's trying to do with an American in Paris, is instill that imagery in you, take you to that place. He said, my purpose here is to portray the impressions of an American visitor in Paris as he strolls about the city, listens to the various street noises, and absorbs the French atmosphere. Meets a French gopher on their descent into madness. He could, yeah. <laughs> it occurs to me that we've also talked about Duke Ellington's Harlem Suite, which also strikes me as a bit of a tone poem. Although that kind of comes in multiple movements. I don't know if that counts or not, but I love the idea. I do like the idea. It's a good idea. Mm -hmm. Its American debut was at Carnegie Hall in 1928. Get this. Less than four weeks after George Gershwin finished the composition. Wow. He finished it and sent it to the band and was like, hurry, get this ready. <laughs> you got 28 days to practice. But it was conducted by Walter Damrosch, the same guy who commissioned a concerto in F, oh. whose name I don't think we mentioned in conjunction with concerto in F. I don't think we did. But he <laughs> did it. It's the same guy. It's nice to have some familiar faces popping up all over his career. And of course, back to back here, I mean, I guess he really went through a tone poem phase in his mid-career because we're talking 
about the Cuban overture next. It's from 1932, another tone poem. It was originally called Roomba, like R-U-M-B-A, not like Sweeper Vacuum Robot. He didn't know about those yet. But it was named after the Cuban musical style at the time, but they decided to change its title to Cuban Overture to make it feel a little less novel to the ill-informed English-speaking American audience. And, much like An American in Paris, it was the result of a two-week trip to Havana that George took in 1932. So I love that he's just going places and just composing music that is like that place to him. Mm. That's so cool. And so, I mean, I guess not unique to him, not to George Gershwin, but just in general, such a an interesting way to write a song. Yeah, I like it. It's kind of like, I know the songs themselves don't really count, but it's kind of like, was it Sufjan St- Stevens? No. With Illinois? Was that Illinois? Did I nail it? I don't know what you're trying to say, but... The concept of writing songs that remind you of, like, a place. It's kind of what he was doing with Illinois, right? It was, like, a whole album dedicated to things in Illinois. Yeah, true. And actually a very interesting and good comparison that I like a lot. Yeah. See, I nailed it. You did. Cuban Overture, I think, is one of the most unique of the longer orchestral pieces in this lineup. And a lot of the reason for that is because it's full of Caribbean themes and rhythms with a lot of interesting Cuban percussion throughout, including claves, which is really fun. Gotta love the, I love the claves. I know, right? They never get old. They're very fun. They're up there with the triangle in terms of things I always want more of. Harmonica. Yeah, harmonica, triangle, and claves. Yeah, the big three. <laughs> interesting. It'd make a really weird song. Coming to Connor's Hibben and Hoppin' album. That'll be my uh, concerto. It'll be <laughs> made up of... We can deconstruct it. <laughs> just, just triangle hits for like 10 minutes. <laughs> and then it switches to just clave hits for 10 minutes and then it switches to just harmonica maybe they come together at the end yeah cuban overture is also written in what's known as ternary form which means it's made of an introductory section a middle and it ends with a reprise of the first section we get that same kind of journey that we took in concerto and f aba if you will abba no that's abba oh my bad <laughs> who we've also talked about on a singles episode yeah <laughs> weird all the singles episodes are converging cuban overture premiered for more than seventeen thousand paying customers at an event that george recalled as the most exciting night i've ever had which sounds i mean just just incredible seventeen thousand people that's an arena full of people coming to hear your work and sit and listen to the brand new george gershwin song i'm sure it was quite the event i'm sure olden day woodstock that's right 1920s woodstock <laughs> gershstock gershstock <laughs> I got a question for you. Yeah, I'm sure you do, but who cares? Okay, fine, I won't ask it. <laughs> yeah, who cares? As a matter of fact, that's the next song we're talking about, 1932's Who Cares? We're specifically talking about Tony Bennett's version. Was there not the Gershwin version on Spotify? Well, I mean, I'm. what do you mean the Gershwin version? They didn't really... Well... Not much recorded music of the Gershwins has survived. Yeah. And, I mean, I wanted a version with lyrics for sure, and I wanted a version... I mean, Tony Bennett, Adam to the Spin Cycle. I've not listened to a Tony Bennett album yet or even had much exposure to him just out and about, but I thought, what a great opportunity to get him in here. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. But Who Cares is another George and Ira piece combined, written for the 1931 musical of The I Sing. It's a satirical musical. They wrote for a lot of satire, is what I noticed. A lot of their musicals were based in or around satire. But it's a satirical musical about American politics. They wrote of The I Sing with the same team that was behind Strike Up the Band, but this time, Kaufman and Riskin worked together on the book, so it didn't need any rewrites. 
And in fact, of the I Sing is considered to be the first consistently satirical American musical. Oh. Yeah, the first satire, which is wild. He's had a lot of firsts. Uh-huh. The Gershwins I'm pioneers in every sense of the word, except the literal sense of, like, westward expansion. <laughs> well, you don't know. I mean, they're from New York. That's pretty far east. Well, the song, Who Cares, comes early in the show's second act. Contextually, what's happening is there's a candidate for president who is in love with a normal woman instead of the supermodel that his campaign tried to set him up with. A situation that we've seen echoes of in real global politics not so long ago. But he's trying to reassure the voters that it's fine if he loves this normal woman. You know, who cares? He's not with the supermodel. He's with this woman instead. Who cares? It actually does get reprised several times throughout the musical as well. I like how the song ends. How do you mean? Which part? What do you mean, which part? What part of the ending do you like? What elements of it? The very end. The part where it ends. It just goes, blomp, blomp, blomp. on the piano just kind of steps down really really yes also we're back to yonkers who cares what banks fail in yonkers (laughs) man those yonkers silly yonkers famous covers of who cares come from legendary names such as fred astaire oh guess who ella fitzgerald whoa also judy garland b arthur tony bennett of course sammy davis jr and many many more I thought Who Cares was fun. We're on kind of a backstretch of shorter songs. Yeah. We're through like the big symphonies and overtures and We're through like what you would what I call staple Gershwins. A lot of them. Like I know you said you picked 15 or whatever of like the most famous Gershwin songs, but like there's a big difference in tone and sound. Oh, definitely. From like a Rhapsody in Blue or a Piano Concerto to Who Cares and Summertime and It's Wonderful, you know. Well, okay, but that's true, but Summertime and the upcoming I Love You Porgy are, are two of Gershwin's like most known and most covered works right up there with Rhapsody. I agree with like most covered and most popular, but I guess when people, at least me, maybe I'm wrong about most people, but in my head, most people associate George Gershwin with classical music, right? I think a lot do. Which isn't necessarily the vibe you get when you're playing It's Wonderful or Who Cares. No, and I think the... And so you might hear that song and not instantly... You know, like, you're going to hear Rhapsody in Blue, and even if you don't necessarily know who did it, you're going to be in that mindset of, like, the Gershwin people and era, not so much with, like, a who cares. Well, the reason for that, I mean, that's all George. All the instrumental stuff, that's all George Gershwin. And I think the real reason that the Gershwins, plural, music kind of extends to such a wide audience and such a wide range is it depends on whether you're thinking of the Gershwins as George Gershwin, the the composer, right? The orchestra guy. Or, or Ira Gershwin, the lyricist, yeah. who helps write these Broadway musicals that have really just laid the foundations for musical theater. You're right. So there's definitely a discrepancy there. But I think, I mean, honestly, Ira is a huge part of why that is and why there are two halves, two sides to the Gershwin coin. I guess I'm a George Gershwin fan. That's fair. And less of an Ira Gershwin fan. Man, okay. Wow. Hey. Well, I (laughs) don't necessarily associate them together right which sure when they work together they put out a lot of stuff like it's wonderful and the musical style songs that you know you were talking about with lyrics and stuff because that's what ira did right yeah skirshwins yeah <laughs> whereas i am I, I remember just like mainly georgie himself you know rhapsody and blue blue monday yeah strike up the band american in paris that kind of stuff 
Because that's what I, I guess, grew up around, right? That was a lot of what we did in band. and Right. When I'd be in one of my classical music kicks, so that's the kind of the place I'd lean. So I guess I'm just more excited to talk about those songs than I am some of the other stuff. Oh, well, I mean, that's fair. I'm excited for the blend. Yeah. Especially Summertime. Summertime is one we're actually revisiting. I don't know if you remember. Really? A little bit. Yeah. Who else did a cover of Summertime? You may remember it from not 100 years ago, but 100 episodes ago. Janis Joplin and Big Brother and the Holding Company covered Summertime. And it's their own version, obviously. Very much more acid rocky than George and Ira ever could have imagined. (laughs) But a lot of the spirit's still there. But yes, finally, we've made it up to Porgy and Bess. Probably the Gershwins, plural, most famous operatic work. It's from 1935. Like Blue Monday, like I said, it's written for an all-black cast, and it actually got performed with an all-black cast, too. And it's also, like Blue Monday, a full-length opera adaptation of a play, which in turn was an adaptation of DeBose Hayward's novel, Porgy. So... (laughs) It was a book, that was a play, that was a musical. But just because the musical was a little bit better than minstrel-style Blue Monday, uh, that doesn't mean it was necessarily unproblematic, because it also received plenty of criticism itself, even back in the day, for its language and its vernacular, as well as stereotypes that definitely haven't aged well a century on, as I'm sure you can imagine. But an interesting fact about this, you know, it's a book play musical is that the musical was actually George Gershwin's idea. It's not one of those situations where someone approached him and commissioned this or someone said, hey, I would love if you wrote this. He read the book in 1924 and he said, oh my gosh, I got to reach out to the author. And he's the one that came to DeBose Hayward with the pitch for what he called a folk opera. That's cool. It is cool. I know. I I love to see that kind of inspiration and initiative come out of him. Like, what a fun thing. He wanted to do it, and he did it, and it is one of the most milestone moments of his career. He said that Porgy and Bess is a folk tale. Its people naturally would sing folk music. When I first began work on the music, I decided against the use of original folk material because I wanted the music to be all of one piece. Therefore, I wrote my own spirituals and folk songs, but there's still folk music, and therefore, being an operatic form, Porgy and Bess becomes a folk opera. So it's kind of a thing that he's made up or concocted, this concept of a folk opera. But once again... George traveled to get the inspiration for his music. The story of Porgy and Bess is set in Charleston, South Carolina. So Gershwin spent a summer there to really get in the mindset of the city. And then he went home and spent 20 months on the score. Almost two years to write Porgy and Bess. That's almost as long as we've been podcasting. It is. It's true. Yeah, what a long time. Porgy and Bess premiered in Boston in September of 1935 before shortly moving on to Broadway. One of the reasons it maybe took 20 months to write is that the initial opera had a four-hour runtime with two intermissions. That's a lot. That's a heck of a lot. It's since been adapted, covered, and revised tons of times worldwide. As far as I could tell, the most recent major American revival of the show happened as recently as 2019. Oh, nice. Yeah. Story-wise, it revolves around the central character of Porgy, a beggar who's trying to rescue Bess from an abusive romantic situation in a world of drugs. I mean, that's where we get to eventually. But Summertime is the opening song for the musical, for the opera. It's really here to set the stage for everything that's coming to follow. It's framed as a lullaby, 
that a mother is singing to her child on a hot summer day with lyrics, of course, by Ira. And it's meant to evoke African-American spirituals. In line with what he said about a folk opera, he really set about trying to make this traditional-sounding new music. And in a way, I think he succeeds to a degree. I liked Summertime. I did too. And the living's easy. You and I aren't the only ones that liked it, though. Critics praised the song very, very highly. Robert Cummings said, Without doubt, one of the finest songs the composer ever wrote. Gershwin's highly evocative writing brilliantly mixes elements of jazz and the song styles of blacks in the southeast United States from the early 20th century. Stephen Sondheim said that they were some of the best lyrics in the musical theater. So that's high praise. Coming from Sondheim, pretty good. Pretty good. I mean, it's no spinning award, but pretty good. Pretty good. And I mean, for this playlist and all intents and purposes, we listened to the Billie Holiday cover of the song for the same reason that I wanted Billie Holiday in the podcast universe and on potential spin cycle track. But do you remember, well, I guess not if you had to ask if we did it before, but you remember the Janice version of Summertime? No. Okay. I was going to ask which one you like better. Oh, definitely this one. No way. Wow. Okay. I've, I think that at the time, wasn't the Janice episode like my lowest rated episode ever? Um. I know it's not now, but it got a really low score. Uh, Let me look. I'll be darned. Yeah, it was your lowest score at the time. <laughs> I remember not liking that one at all. <laughs> Wild. Well, fair enough. Yeah, we did learn you weren't super big into acid rock. Or maybe just weren't in the mood for it. Yeah. But that's summertime. That's from the opening moments of Porgy and Bess. Later on in the show, we get I Loves You, Porgy. Now, it's from the same show, so I won't go over all the specifics and the details again. Also by someone we've done. That's right. The first version I heard of I Loves You, Porgy was James Brown's version of the song. Mm. It rips. Oh, it's so different. It rips? It doesn't slap? No, it doesn't slap. It rips. Nina Simone's version is the one we put on the playlist this time to listen to and talk about because she's got one of the most famous covers of it. Our episode on Nina Simone was number 77, by the way, if you're looking. But I love this version of the song. Oh my gosh. I listened to that whole Nina Simone album. And I mean, I, I liked it a lot. I had no idea that she could like crush a song like I Love You Porgy in the way that she does. It's so soft and tender and emotional and just captivating start to end i really loved this version of i love you porgy maybe i'm being dramatic i really liked it really liked it or like really loved it uh, or kind of loved it i mean don't say i loved it but i liked liked it okay <laughs> but this song i love you porgy kind of happens at a climatic moment in the show's second act porgy he's temporarily got bess away from crown who's her abuser and this is Bess telling porgy that she loves him and she wants to stay with him and she's worried about how her ex will react of course if he finds out that she's left him and gone he might come back violently or or be dangerous and porgy promises to protect Bess, whatever it takes and so this song comes in this supercharged emotional moment man i just feel like she sings the whole song in character so well i don't know i just love it a lot and that could end up on my playlist pick too i don't know i'm guessing you're gonna take something from the george gershwin side of things so maybe i should take an ira type song to balance it out no we'll see we'll see how what it all comes down to here this episode was inspired by george gershwin his brother's just here 
because why not? That's not true. They work as a team. We would not be doing Ira Gershwin if it wasn't for George Gershwin being on this podcast before. I don't I don't know if Ira Gershwin would be a lyricist if it wasn't for George Gershwin. Exactly. So all the credit goes to George. I don't know about that. <laughs> We're in disagreement. I think you should have to pay the piper. Is this episode not paying the piper? I think it's time for you to reap what you sowed back on episode 45 or whatever episode it was. It was 45. I don't know what I sowed. We'll get there. I guess so. Stay tuned to find out what I reap. Before we get there, though, we got to move to 1937 and let's call the whole thing off. The whole episode? Really? No. No, 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 no. We're talking about the song. Oh, my bad. Let's call the whole thing off. It's the, yeah. What a fun song. More Ella Fitzgerald. Yes, another Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong. Honestly, with Ella Fitzgerald singing three of these songs, it's almost kind of a George and Ira and Ella episode. (laughs) Well, she did sing their whole songbook. Yeah. And she was, I knew a touchstone point like we did the episode on her i know she's come up on the podcast before and i picked this version because of louis armstrong fair enough i wanted him on the spin cycle too yeah louis armstrong what a guy what a voice let's call the whole thing off was by both the gershwin brothers it was composed for the movie shall we dance in 1937 fred astaire and ginger rogers performed the original version and i believe it or not this is actually a song i knew beforehand one of the few i think out of this catalog unlike you i did not have very much gershwin exposure but this is that fun little you know you say tomato i say tomato you say potato i say potato kind of songs seems innocent and fun enough right but i figured out i learned some things while i was researching this we've kind of co-opted that little tomato tomato thing into a you know to each his own kind of thing yeah but actually the reason it's in here is that it back in the day was supposed to be used to illustrate this relationship that's built on class differences. One pronunciation and one partner in this duo was supposed to be or come across as sophisticated and refined, and the other one wasn't. I say tomato, you say tomato. (laughs) Yeah, something (laughs) like that. You hear how sophisticated and refined that was? So it's used here, that duology kind of thing. It's used to kind of get a star-crossed lovers from different world situation wait which one do you think is supposed to be classist you think it's like oh i say tomato because i'm uneducated and don't know better or is it supposed to be tomato like oh you're saying it fancy which way do you think that's supposed to go i don't know i don't have any idea (laughs) (laughs) like i said the meaning has been largely lost to time i mean to us in modern day a lot of expressions like that are backwards nowadays yeah we really have a bad time keeping our idioms straight it's true we do but to read through the lyrics it looks like a stupid song. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah, you don't know how they're supposed to be pronounced. You say potato, I say potato. You say tomato, I say tomato. <laughs> it's just the whole thing. What do you think is the most egregiously oh. mispronounced word? Ooh, I don't know. I know, and it's an easy guess once you think of it. I don't know which one. It's oysters and ersters. Oh, I was thinking that, but I thought that that one came to mind. But I know somebody who pronounces it ersters. So really, yeah, I don't. Wait, are we classy or not? I don't know. Is the person you know classy or not? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, we better call the whole thing off. Actually, I love also the subtle twist here too of it's better to call the calling off off 
Like, oh, what a mess. Should we date? Should we not date? Maybe we should call it off. No, we should definitely date. Let's quit breaking up. It's very fun. And I can tell, I mean, you can hear it in the way that they sing it. Louie and Ella have such a fun time with this song. And that makes it fun to listen to. Here's one, though, that I do need to know. How do you say, do you say neither or neither? It depends on the context. Okay, that's me too, right? When that one came out, I was like, okay, I was like, but if I use both. Depends on if I'm in a classy or a classless uh, situation. Yeah. Yeah, I really think it does depend on context. If I'm either A or B or either D or F, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think I have a neither lean to me, though. Oh, you lean neither? I think I lean neither. Well, I lean neither. It kind of just depends. Like, I would say me neither. I'd never say me neither. Yeah, yeah, I would say me neither, but I would say neither here nor there. You know, so it's like it's like both. Yeah, <laughs> weird word. It is. Let's call the whole word off. Like most words, like that, like people say it one way or the other, right? And it's like a divide. That's like the only one I think that I saw in this song that I say both ways. Mm-hmm. Anyway, last up in our long odyssey of Gershwin works is "Love Is Here to Stay" from 1938. This song hits a little differently, rings a little different than the rest of them on this list. Why? Well, in 1937, George Gershwin started to experience a lot of sudden health problems. Really severe headaches, said he smelled burning rubber a lot. You know, some of those stomach aches kind of things. Just was not doing his best. In February, he was performing Concerto in F with the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra one day when... He suddenly had a lot of coordination problems and blacked out. Oh, no. Yeah, he started having mood swings and trouble eating. In July, he just collapsed and fell into a coma. As it turns out, he had been unknowingly suffering from a brain tumor. Oh, no. They tried very frantically to perform surgery to save his life, but... It's not the kind of thing I want you to do frantically. I want you to take your time with brain surgery. Well, they didn't have time to take their time. They didn't even have time to do it frantically. He passed away on July 11th in 1937 at the age of 38 years old. And Love is Here to Stay was the last work that George completed before his death, actually. After he passed away, Ira took the score that George had written and composed lyrics to it as a tribute to his late brother. And actually, George didn't have a verse written when he wrote the song. He had some ideas that he had shared with Ira and pianist Oscar Levant, but he never got around to writing them into the song himself. So Ira sat down with the pianist and they recreated it from memory and worked that kind of added verse into the existing score. It made its debut in the 1938 film The Goldwyn Follies, but apparently they didn't use much of it. After this really frustrating meeting where they were trying to pitch the song to the film company, George and Ira, right, renowned world-famous songwriters, they had to pitch the entire score to a panel of producers. And, like, how humiliating. At the end of the day, it only ended up with, like, one chorus in the movie. They did all this work to prep it and get it ready, and it's a song by two of the great composing minds of multiple generations and they just take that tiny little chorus that's rough rough yeah but since that time obviously it's had a ton of covers from frank sinatra to billy holiday to ella fitzgerald to pat boone to the beach boys brian wilson oh yeah other than that song ira 
took a three-year hiatus from writing to grieve his brother's death. But afterwards, Ira continued to compose with other writers like Jerome Kern, Harold Arlen, and Kurt Weill. He worked on film lyrics. He received, he actually revived almost a dozen unused George Gershwin compositions, and he did a lot more work. Famously, Ira would write for Judy Garland's 1954 movie, A Star is Born. He continued to work for a couple decades, and then in 1983, he passed away from heart disease at the age of 86. Pretty good age. It is. That's the story of the Gershwins end to end. What an amazing legacy these two left on not just American music, but music in general. Not quite end to end. We didn't start. Did we start with when they were born? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, we started with their parents immigrating from Eastern Europe. Fair enough. We kind of got a little bit of a prequel in there. Yeah, we started before the end. Well, before the before the beginning. The end. From end to end. Before. Mm. <laughs> you get what I'm saying. We started before the Gershwins were on the scene and we're ending after they've left. So that takes us to final spin. It's a different kind of final spin this time because it's kind of a career classics episode. Therefore, I did my best not to score these recordings of the songs per se, but the songs themselves. So I don't have an instruments and production score because that's based on a specific recording. I'm mostly given scores for the music, for the lyrics, and just for the vibe in general of the songs and and how they sound. So music, 93. Incredible. Just so good. (laughs) So many of these songs that I thought would get lost on me because they're 30 minute symphonic pieces stuck around so much to the point where I could identify a lot of them from random points in the middle of the songs, which I did not expect and was pleasantly surprised by. Heck yeah. I really like George's composition style. I like a lot of his melodic choices and I love the diversity in this collection of works too. Lyrically, 81. A lot of the songs don't have lyrics, so that is a bit of a hindrance. And a lot of the lyrics, to be fair, that we talked about today weren't written by Ira Gershwin, but a lot were. So 81 for lyrics. I think a surprising amount of them hold up surprisingly well today. No instruments and production score from me, but overall vibe 95. I really enjoyed getting familiar with these songs. I really liked learning so much about George and Ira Gershwin for this episode. You know, it's just been a really, really fun way to spend this gopher day with you. You want to do it again tomorrow and the day after that? The day after that. And the day after that? Well, do I look like Bill Murray to you? Well, no, that'd be Groundhogs. Oh, you're right. That's giving the George and Ira Gershwin Go For Day Career Classic Special an overall score of 90.5 from me. Nice. Nice indeed. A 90.5, if it were an album, would rank it... Top 100. Close. Really high. It would rank at number 82. 82. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty high up there. Bravo, G&I. G and I would rank at 82, but what about you? I also liked it. You liked it? Oh, really? Shocker. Big fan of George Gershwin. Are you really? Decent enough fan of Ira Gershwin. I don't know. You don't sound like a fan of Ira Gershwin. It's a good enough fan. Yeah. I'm going to start with my top three. Okay. In the order we listen. Career order. In career order. <laughs> Big. Rhapsody in Blue. Ooh. Skipping over the opera? You don't You don't like Blue Monday enough to be in the top three? Not in the top three. No, I, I believe that. Concerto in F. Nice. That's a long concerto. Yeah. An American in Paris. That would be like us if we were in Paris. And Conorable Mention. Who cares? I go back and forth. Whoa. I'm thinking who cares. 
It's either that or let's call the whole thing off. Really? But I can't tell if that's just the Louis Armstrong bias kicking in. Maybe. I'll throw Ira Connerable mention. Okay. Like them good enough. Good. That's, I definitely thought you were going to say Cuban Overture there towards the end. I like Cuban Overture, but I don't know. It's just not It's not quite as good as An American in Paris. I think that's the better of the whatever that type of song was you named. The tone poem? Yeah, that. Yeah. I actually am not surprised to see your top three skewing, George. Me neither. As for a uh, score. Yeah, what's that score? Given this one, eight descents into madness montages out of ten, obviously. Whoa, really? Yeah. Why? Like, why isn't, like, too low or why isn't, like, too high? Too low. Why Why so low? An eight? Rhapsody in Blue was your idea. Yeah. I don't know. There's a couple songs that kind of lost me. Really? Yeah. Wow. I thought this would be like your thing. It is. Whoa. It's, it got an eight. That's a pretty good score. Yeah. Yeah, but wow. I know I've given out a lot of nines recently in the year of healing, but I don't just give them out like candy necessarily. You know, I got a lot of non-nuns. No, but you always talk up like classical music. We should do classical music. Yeah. We haven't ventured there much and instrumental episodes. And, and half the freaking playlist was more modern day covers of classical music. <laughs> I don't know what you, I don't, I don't know. You want music from the 1930s? Let me go find on Spotify. No, I just, I want more Rhapsody in Blue and less I Love You Porgies. Although I love you Porgies. I like that. I love you. I don't know. I want more Rhapsody and Blues, less Wonderfuls. All right. Oh, but Wonderful was Wonderful. <sighs> I liked it a lot. <sighs> but you liked it an eight. I think if it was just Concerto, Rhapsody, American in Paris, Cuban Overture, you know, the non-lyrical stuff, plus maybe, who who cares, and let's call the whole thing off, are passable. But I think some of the other stuff pulled me out of the go-for-day classical instrumental music vibe that I was digging. Like, you talked about how long and how the concerto almost could have been its own episode or like its own album it was it's it's an album length song yeah yeah if we'd just done that it would have probably got it could have been my second ever 10 wow i really enjoyed the concerto that's more the speed i was expecting from this give me the concerto rhapsody in blue and an american in paris only just those three songs and you got perfect you've got better than ray stevens on your hand almost oh my gosh you know those three are great it's getting a high eight don't get me wrong it's going right you're gonna hate this <laughs> it's going right above the beatles abbey road so you know not much beat it up that is a little tough to swallow no that's true here's a shocker though if i gave it a nine it was also going above abbey road so you know you were swallowing that either way well, that's true <laughs> i think my problem is not with where you put this but where you put the beatles sounds like you have a problem with where i put this too <laughs> maybe my thing is if we're doing an episode about career's greatest hit yeah I think to neglect those Broadway songs and those jauntier vaudeville stuff. I didn't say I had a problem with what you picked. For, for what the episode was, it makes sense to include well, them. Well, yeah, his career just necessarily includes those. Yeah, I think it made sense to include them. Just the inclusion of them kept it out of nine territory. Fair enough, I guess. Are there any Gershwin songs you know of that I should have considered or added? Do you feel like anything was missing? That is a great question yeah well i would have went with a different version of summertime first off well versions potato potato but you didn't have literally on the songbook 
it's it's called like Songbook, the man I love, slow and in singing style. If you hit play on, if you look that one up and hit play on it, you'll recognize it. I think instantly. Songbook, the man I love. Songbook's like a whole series of George Gershwin songs. Gershwin, the man I love. I might recognize that one a bit. The thing is, I couldn't pick all of them. We had to do some weaning down here a little bit. Yeah, no, you're right. You just you specifically asked what would I have picked instead of you, so thought I'd give you one. I know, thank you. There's a Gershwin Piano Works uh playlist that I actually have saved in my library um, that I listen to when I'm in the Gershwin mood. You get in a whole Gershwin mood and you gave him an eight? You have a mood dedicated to the man and you gave him an eight. I gave what you picked an eight. That's a, more of a reflection on you than the man. All right. That playlist there has a pretty good Gershwin itch scratcher, if you will. Sure. Well, what are our itch scratchers going to be on the playlist? It is time to reap. It's time to reap. <laughs> time to reap. It's reaping time. <laughs> yeah, okay. You know, I think you should have to specifically pick the song you vetoed back on episode 45 from being picked, but then brought yourself here. So I think you should be forced to take Rhapsody in Blue. Forced? You're the one that banned me from picking it and here it is again coming for your karma well i have to be honest on episode 45 i picked your pick you didn't pick rhapsody in blue i picked uh, i guess did you bring the polar boys i thought you brought the polar boys no i brought rhapsody in blue that, that was like the whole thing what oh. <laughs> no i know wait who did the polar boys uh, i don't remember didn't we have a limit on picking the songs that we brought for the playlist anyway no 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 no, no. not on that one specifically on the first one we talked about but i said i really wanted to bring rhapsody and you're like absolutely not it's too long you can't pick it not allowed. I veto it. Your exact words in the episode are, I veto it. Rhapsody in blue? <laughs> I warned you. Well, I won't veto it. Time for karmic justice. Are they really? I didn't listen that far into the episode. Yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty certain. I'm like 90% certain. You said it. Well, I won't veto it. You vetoed me from picking Rhapsody in Blue. I'm open to it being on the playlist this time. Yeah, but I don't want to pick it. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, see? The truth comes out. No, no. The answer is I have two songs I want on the playlist from this, and I don't think you'll pick the second one, but you have a chance of picking this one. Well, it's true. <laughs> what is your other song? Is it? It's not all of Concerto and F. Well, I was going to ask if that was on the table. No. <laughs> You're going to veto me on George Gershwin again? Is that what you're saying? I'm not going to veto Rhapsody <laughs> in Blue. I'll veto... Hey, I asked if we were going to talk about each of the sections as their own separate track, and you said, no, we're going to talk about it all together, so I should be able to pick it all together, because that's how we did it on the episode. Then the number of songs on the playlist isn't going to line up really fun with the number of episodes we've done. I'm sure... There, is there not a version? Is there not a version where it's all together i looked and i couldn't really find one. Oh, disappointing yeah i i, I won't pick that one because i wouldn't be able to pick out my favorite section okay <laughs> i'm a big fan of an american in paris though yeah understandable what are you wanting to pick here's the thing i mean picking both those songs totally excludes ira yeah first of all it's not his episode <laughs> it's the gershwins both. <laughs> i would lean towards well since you hated wonderful so much I would lean towards I Loves You, Porgy. I don't want Nina Simone on the podcast again. I already got her on the playlist twice. That's going to be true for almost everything. It's just going to pop up as Nina Simone. They're not going to know that it was George Gershwin. Well, that's true. We'll know. No, we won't. What about Swanee? That had Ira on it. Oh, I do like Swanee. That one is fun. Ira's not really on Swanee either. Well, it, say, it says right there, George Gershwin, Ira Gershwin. But I am open to right that. right on Spotify. It says both their names. He's credited. He didn't write it. <laughs> he just didn't credit it 
on Spotify or not. I mean, you could pick an American in Paris because that had both of them, right? Or did it also only have George? No, that was just George. Myra was a lyricist. <laughs> we did a Gershwin episode. Rhapsody in Blue and Swanee are both songs that sound like Gershwin when you pl- hit play on them. I would really love to put I Love You Porgy on the playlist. I could be persuaded down to let's call the whole thing off in Rhapsody in Blue. Mm, I veto you. You don't have a veto. You vetoed me last time when with Gersh when I veto you this time. Well, I won't veto it. How about this? I'll even let you take the version of Rhapsody in Blue that's from the symphony, the Chicago Symphony, the one that you brought on episode 45. Really? Yeah. It's like you're undoing my veto. Yeah, it is. In the year of healing. It's a reto. It's a reto. <laughs> Let's reto it up. Yeah, in the year of healing. This is this is my step towards healing, is bringing Rhapsody in Blue back. Wow. Rhapsody in Blue, and let's call the whole thing off. Let's call the whole thing on. Wow. Dreams do come true. I'm glad we uh, reached a consensus on that. That was very good of us. It was hard work, but we got there. But that's going to do it for this episode, I think. If you're new here, this is not quite our normal shtick. We usually do this exact thing, but we do it about an album Yeah. of my choosing and that Connor's never heard before. Sometimes mine. Sometimes Connor's choosing. It just depends. But stay tuned next week when we're back. Well, no, next week is the Grammy special. Stay tuned next week for the Grammy special. And then we'll be back to choosing albums all over the place. We're going to talk about the album of the year grammy winner heck yeah and i promise it's really next week this time not whatever happened to us last year when i forgot when the grammys were better be that happened twice in a row we'd have to fire the entire scheduling department i'd just sue the grammys (laughs) but we'll deal with that in the meantime you can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can find us on the web instagram at spin it pod official twitter at spin it pod x at spin it pod and at www.spinitpod.com. Don't forget the www, it's important. All three of them. Mm-hmm. Tell a friend who gets really bad gastric distress. Ooh. What was the word we used specifically? Tell a friend who has really bad gastric dysfunction. About the podcast? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just go up to him and be like, hey, you have gastric dysfunction. <laughs> yeah, sure. We'll see you next time. And until next gopher day, keep, keep spinning. spinning. Until next gopher day, keep, keep spinning. spinning. And next until next go for day, keep spinning. spinning. And until next go for day, you know the thing for Groundhog Day is that the day repeats itself over and over. All, there's no more reason for that, really, right? Groundhog Day is just the day they decided to make that movie about. That's not like a Groundhog Day thing. But what would Go for Day do? It doesn't repeat the same day over and over. I think Go for Day is where every day is a different day. You wake up and every day is the next day. Every day is Go for Day. Like that's <laughs> that's that's wild. What a concept. What if Go for Day you keep, you live the day in reverse? Oh, I think if he sees his shadow, we're in for six more, well, five more months of healing. Oh, and if he doesn't... We're still in for five more months of healing. It's either five more months of healing or the next year is around the corner. Yeah, maybe. See, that's how they get you with Groundhog Day. They say, you know, however many more weeks, but then they also say if not, then spring's around the corner. They don't really say how long of a time frame around the corner is. It's the same amount of weeks. How many weeks that is. It's the same amount of weeks. That's how they get you. Those scheming groundhogs.